bringing our attention to the present moment, with your eyes gently close, and before trying to do anything with the body or the mind, just take a moment to notice what the mood is like. Do you feel sleepy, expectant, depressed, cheerful? How is it? There's no right or wrong starting place instead of in, in respect to the moods we feel, but it's always helpful to notice where we're starting from. What's the material we're working with? How does the body feel? In a similar way, there's no right or wrong feeling for the body, but it helps us to notice how it is, where we're beginning from. So do you feel comfortable, uncomfortable, heavy, light, tense, relaxed, warm or cool? How is the body in this moment? Uh, there are many different aspects of Buddhist meditation, but most of them revolve around the development of two natural qualities, two capacities that we all possess already, but which are undeveloped or unperfected. This is the capacity to be awake, to be energetic and aware, and the capacity to be focused, to be peaceful, to be calm. These are two attributes of the awakened mind, both to be tranquil, peaceful, concentrated, also to be alert, energetic, attentive. So if we wish to establish and develop these qualities in the mental world, it helps us to bring those into balance in the physical world. So bringing attention into the body, invite your spine to stretch and lengthen to its full, comfortable, natural limit. So the body is holding itself upright, but without being tense or rigid. and around that central column of the spine let the rest of the body be fully at ease, fully relaxed, settled.
and let the attention move steadily through the body from the head to your neck and shoulders, the trunk of the body all the way to your feet inviting the body to be fully at ease free from tension settled, grounded in this way we're balancing the qualities of energy and relaxation alertness and peacefulness right here in the body The tendency of our attention is to drift, drifting towards dullness and sleepiness. Saturday afternoon, warm, bright day, after a good lunch, mind can easily slide into switched-off mode. Relaxation goes with snoring. You kind of go into a dull, numb state, which is peaceful, but not alert. Or the mind can drift in the opposite direction, towards busyness and agitation, remembering, planning, worrying, fantasizing. The more we are able to notice this habit of drifting to dullness or towards agitation, the more the mind can guard against that, can sustain a balance of alert peacefulness. Now the easiest way to do this is to take a, a meditation object. There are many different things we can use to be such a, a reference point or a marker. The most accessible for most people is the natural rhythm of our own breathing. But consciously bring your attention to the, the flow of your breath. Wherever you perceive it most easily, just place that, the attention there so that that cluster of feelings of the inhalation and the exhalation right at the center of attention. For the next 20 minutes we can consciously put every other concern aside. The world will keep turning without us worrying about it. And let the feelings of the breath be right at the very center, the very heart of our attention, like the center of a mandala, the heart of a flower. Let the breath be right at the very center. And whenever the attention wanders and drifts away, notice that as soon as you can, very gently, 
very patiently but with resolution let go whatever the attention has latched onto like a, a burr in your sock or a, a tick landing on your leg notice that shake it off let it go whether it's a thought or a feeling or a sound notice it let go of it free the attention from that bring it back to the center in this way we're not making our thoughts and feelings a problem or an enemy or something to fight against we're not working against the mind but rather with it it's a collaborative effort working with the body, with the mind rather than turning meditation into a struggle or a fight as if we were training a small child to how to ride a bicycle or write the alphabet very gently, very patiently, very firmly we keep noticing the faults the drift towards dullness or sleepiness, distraction notice it, let go come back to the center once again this way we're giving the mind direction but on a basis of kindness and cooperation a basis of acceptance, friendliness rather than aggression or ambition by using a peaceful means we arrive at a peaceful end Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sangma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sangma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sangma Sambuddhasa Buddhang Tamang Sanghang Namasami Well, I'm very, very happy indeed to be here with um, my dear friend uh, uh, Ajahn Viridamo. Uh, as he said, uh, we've known each other since uh, <coughs> 
the late 70s, 1979, uh, he met me at the airport when I flew back from Thailand. Correct. Right. He did. <laughs> I was very skinny, a lot skinnier than I am now, to the extent that my, my mother and my two sisters were waiting for me at the airport, and Ajahn Viradamo and Ajahn Anando, and uh, my sisters didn't recognize me but my mother did, <laughs> even though there were not very many white monks arriving through the <laughs> arrivals gate, uh, but Ajahn Viridama was there with Ajahn Anando. So uh, since I first set foot in the West as a monk, uh, I've been uh, uh, blessed with the friendship uh, of uh, Ajahn V, and uh, it's very lovely to come to Tisarana uh, after its establishment for quite a long time now, and i uh, not had the opportunity to come and visit, but uh, uh, things came together for this year uh, for me to visit here and also to revisit Michigan and then to go on to Temple Monastery. So I'm very glad indeed uh, of this opportunity and to meet the community here and to see all the uh, development, both in terms of the physical development but also the development of the spiritual community, the, uh, the, uh, <coughs> the fourfold Sangha that's uh, and say developing here, so it's a great delight. So uh, when I was in Michigan, uh, one of the uh, themes that came up a lot uh, in the different uh, teachings and dialogues that, that we had there was the uh, the aspect of um, making effort in our meditation, in particular. Now many of us have been meditating for many years. I see uh, I'm not the only grey-haired person in the in the assembly. Uh, so many of us have been uh, meditating for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And uh, so there can be a, a, a common experience that, that we have of putting a lot of effort into the practice, going on retreats, trying to meditate every day, and um, working with the mind, and yet a feeling of of uh, not getting anywhere, or thing, things not working out, or we're trying really hard and, and things aren't uh, working well with, uh, after so many years still we feel oh, my mind is still chattering, it's all over the place, my emotions are reactive um, what to do? <laughs> as we would say in Europe so uh, is that a familiar experience? Yeah. this side of the room too? Yeah. <laughs> it's fairly universal so this is something that uh, you know uh, I've been involved in teaching meditation since um, about 1984 uh, so that's a long time <laughs> so 35 years or so and so this is a, a very very common issue uh, for, for us um, and uh, so it's a, a useful thing to contemplate uh, uh, why do we feel this way uh, can we do things differently can we have a different attitude towards our, our practice and our life in general that, that uh, um, is more helpful or more beneficial or really enables us to make use of the faculties that we have to train our hearts, our minds in a way to uh, arrive at a greater quality of, of happiness and freedom uh, and to uh, also to help us to uh, use our abilities to focus the mind and find real peacefulness. So there are, there are different aspects to this, and uh, one, uh, one of the things I've considered is that 
culturally we have a lot of conditioning whether we're Asian or, or European uh, in our ancestry we're living in the West there's a very strong culture of waiting for the weekend yeah like, uh, won't it be nice when this is all over won't it be nice when I don't have to bother and it's the weekend then great or, or when the meditation's over yeah. you notice how it's kind of interesting that it's when the bell goes you feel most relaxed <laughs> right uh, or when, when, I, when, when we reach retirement or when I stop having to be an abbot <laughs> <laughs> then it's going to be really great um, so I'm not reading any, uh, again, I, I often point out I'm not reading anybody's mind if you're thinking, how did you know, how did you know <laughs> it's, it's not psychic powers, it's statistics <laughs> this is how most of us are you know, we, uh, we're waiting for, the, for the, the good bit over there waiting for the holiday, waiting for the retreat, waiting for the retreat to be over uh, waiting for uh, the weekend so the, this is always a bit of a chore but that is really promising the, the way that we pick up this even if this is meditation whether in our, our working life or our, uh, our routines and our, our roles and responsibilities there's this powerful uh, attitude of wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have to bother I'll be really happy when this is all over <coughs> and so this is natural, this is ordinary enough but if the mind latches onto that and believes in it then uh, it's like it's like trying to walk to the horizon. You you get to that what you thought was the edge, and oh, it goes on. And you get to what you thought was the the edge. And, well, this is a very flat country, so still <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of walking to get to the horizon here. Uh, but it it just keeps stretching out before you. You you never get to the end. It's always over there where the good stuff is. So the the promise of peace and the promise of of relief. Well, uh, one of the, um, uh, the, the aspects of this, I, I feel, is that particularly in terms of meditation, just starting off with that area first of all, is that we make meditation into this kind of work that we have to do. And that, that little uh, observation that when the bell goes we feel most peaceful, it's not just because our knees are released from their, uh, their, their kind, of, uh, 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 kind of folded up state and we can relax our knees, but rather, there's a sense of, ah, I, don't ha I don't have to be doing something. The bell's gone. The me doing something-ness has come to an end. So that's, I would say, that's where the feeling of relief comes from, is that ah, I don't have to be doing that thing, even if that thing was being sort of uh, deliberately peaceful with a, with a meditation. Is that familiar? <laughs> so the... Um, that uh, the way that we make the uh, action into a chore, into a thing that I have to do in order to fulfill some duty or get something done uh, for some purpose, the very way that we work, that we, we, uh, <coughs> we take action, uh, I think is that I feel is really at the, at the core of it. So that, uh, and, and it can be very frustrating, particularly those of us who've been meditating for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm where you feel like, I'm following all the instruction, it says, abandon the hindrances, let go of sense desire, let go of ill will, get rid of your chattering thoughts, get rid of your ill will, uh, get rid of dullness and doubt and restlessness, 
okay, I've got to get rid of all that, and I've got to, I've got to get concentrated. I've got to, uh, I've got to keep the precepts. I've got to practice dana. I've got to develop wisdom. Uh, but all of that, I got to, I should, I must, I, I have to get rid of. I, ha I have to get hold of. Um, are and we feel like I'm following the instructions. That's what the Ajahn has said, the the Sayadaw or the instruction book. It's saying that I'm, I'm doing what the Buddha told me to. How come it's uh, it's frustrating, or how come I'm not peaceful yet? So what I, I feel happens, and I certainly saw this has happened in my own mind a lot over the years, is that the, all those good and useful, skillful instructions uh, that in themselves are perfectly valid. Uh, yes, abandon sense desire, uh, ill will, uh, <coughs> dullness, doubt, and uh, restlessness. Uh, very good. Cultivate loving-kindness, cultivate generosity, cultivate the virtue, concentration. These are all absolutely perfect and beautiful and good in themselves. The problem is that they get hijacked by self-view. It's like a, one of those Trojan programs that kind of sneak in your computer and take it over. If you've read about those things, and or maybe you've had your computer freeze on you, it's like a, a virus that sort of sneaks into the system and takes it over without you realizing. So it's, I've got to get rid of sense desire, I've got to get rid of ill will, I've got to get rid of my chattering thoughts, I've got to become, I've got to develop loving kindness, I'm, I'm too grumpy and selfish, I've got to be more generous, I've got to be more loving kind, have more loving kindness. So the, those beautiful and wholesome intentions are being co-opted by self-view, or in Pali we call it's, it's called Sakaya Ditti, uh, and Thai language Kit Do Eng the kind of self-centered thinking, thinking about yourself. And uh, the uh, and our attention goes on to what we're trying to do, and we don't notice that there's this I, me, and mine that is sort of uh, the, the virus that we picked up, or like, a, like one of these ticks you have abundantly here. <laughs> one of the Ontario ticks that will bless you with Lyme's disease if you're not careful. So the... Uh, uh, I feel this is a, a really important uh, uh, aspect of, of Dhamma practice because when you bring attention to that and, you, and we, we explore that and see how much self-view is, is driving our, our efforts in, in practice, then you can begin to see, oh, this is uh, uh, <coughs> perhaps a direct result of all that I, me and mine, that sense of ownership and, and meanness and minus uh, that... That's what's <coughs> creating the sense of, uh, or feeding the sense of frustration and difficulty. Because as long as there's a sense of I, there's a, that, that's the, there's a sense of stress, and so it's the, it's not. I would suggest the uh, the act of training the mind or any kind of work that we do, but it's rather that it's being um, say uh, grasped and taken over by by self view. Does this make sense? So that uh, the the uh, um, the challenge then is to how can we make effort? How can we we work with our minds free from self-view? And those of us who've been around Lumpur Sumato's teachings for many years, uh, you've read his books or listened to his his talks, uh, you'll know that he talks a lot about bhavatanna and vibhavatanna, the desire to become and the desire to get rid of. Those of us who've been his students for 40 years, <laughs> would have heard in, in endless, endless, endless Dhamma talks about this. And uh, 
And this was, a, I felt, was really helpful because when you talk, when we think about craving, and when we we consider the four noble truths, and the Buddha saying that craving or tanha is the cause of, of suffering, we think, yeah, well, that, we tend to think that's craving for pizza or craving for a new car or craving for a uh, a, a good retirement program or craving for a good school or a good relationship, a good ajahn. <laughs> the <coughs> and so that we tend to look upon that craving which is the cause of, of suffering or discontent as sense desire because that's kind of that's sort of brighter and louder and gets the attention but uh, it, it was really helpful when I, when I was first at, at Chittas all those years ago and Ajahn Sumedha would be talking about this I think well, what does he mean desire to become desire to get rid of I, I'd never even heard the terms or had any idea what he's talking about but then as you began to meditate more continually and look more closely, you realize, oh, this is what he's talking about. That when the Buddha defined the, the, the cause of discontent, the cause of suffering in the Four Noble Truths, yes, sense desire gets first place, karma, tanha, but then the kind of two outriders, like the kind of motorcycle escort, <laughs> you got bhavatana and vibhavatana, the kind of outriders. They're the kind of shadowy ones in the in the in the edges. You know, sense desire gets all the page space. You know that you're trying to deal with your cravings for cheesecake or pizza or, or chili sauce or whatever. And uh, but meanwhile, bhavatana and vibhavatana, the desire to become, the desire to get rid of, they're like the outriders. You don't really notice them because the attention goes on the sort of bright, loud, and mobile uh, thing in the middle. So uh, it was really helpful, and at first I, I didn't really didn't get uh, uh, what Ajahn Sumedha was talking about. But then, the more you practice, and the more you, particularly being in retreat and having longer periods of meditation, you begin to see, all oh, right, this, <laughs> see what he's talking about—the desire to get rid of. I've got to get rid of my chattering thoughts. I've got to be more uh, kind. I've got to get rid of my jealousy and anger and so on. That. Uh, he would flag those those habits of mind. I've got to become. I've got to get rid of. I should, and he would his his uh, active highlighting of those qualities was really helpful. So uh, when you look at the making of effort, then the uh, the challenge is then to spot those characters: the desire to become, the desire to get rid of, and uh, uh, and to to be able to be aware of those to bring that into, um, say, full consciousness when you're practicing meditation, to notice how the mind, uh, uh, say, gives direction to, to the meditation. I should, I've got to, I'm, I've got to get rid of, I want to, I want to get concentrated, I need to get first jhana, and so on. I'm presuming most of you understand this kind of terminology? Yeah. You, you, uh, if there's anyone who's just walked into this tent for the, uh, for the first time, yeah, sorry for all the jargon. <laughs> But, uh, I'm presuming most of you are familiar with the, a lot of this terminology. So um, uh, it can be uh, it can be confusing because, yeah, as I said, we, we think we're doing the right thing, and especially when the the when the Buddha's definition of right effort is to restrain the uh, uh, unwholesome from arising. If the unwholesome has arisen, to let it go, to cultivate the wholesome and uh, to maintain the wholesome that has arisen in being. So, so well, how's that? How am I doing that wrong? What am I, what am I missing out on? Or how, how is that different from this desire to get rid of uh, anger and greed and, and selfishness and dullness and to 
to become concentrated, to, be, to become, uh, say, awake and wise. Well, <coughs> the difference between the mind being guided by the by bhavatana, vibhavatana, the desire to get rid of and the desire to become, there's always a, a self-centered element in that. I am always there. I, me, mine. There's always a, a self-centered element in that. With, with, whereas with right effort, uh, which is the factor of the path, uh, that there's no self-view involved in that. So that there's the unwholesome is uh, is restrained. Rather than I shouldn't get angry. It's like um, <coughs> anger is an unwholesome quality. Let there be the effort to restrain it. If it has arisen, there's a recognition. There is uh, anger has arisen, or jealousy, or fear, or aversion, or desire has arisen. Uh, this is an unwholesome quality. Uh, the appropriate thing is to, is for it to be let go of. It doesn't have to be an I or a me or a mine. And it's not just the choice of words. It's a different attitude. It's like recognizing, oh, this road goes to Toronto, this road goes to Ottawa. Uh, where do you want to go? Do you want to go to Ottawa? Do you want to go to Toronto or to Montreal? Yeah. Where do you want to go? It's not like you hate Montreal and you, you, and you, you love Ottawa. You love Ottawa and, you, uh, and you, you hate Ottawa and you love Montreal. Well, maybe you do. But... <laughs> You know, if that's the place you need to go, you get to the junction, you turn right rather than left. It's a simple, practical uh, giving of direction. Uh, when our practice then is guided by right effort, then uh, it's the, the, the engine of decision-making, if you like, or what guides those choices, is mindfulness and wisdom. And, it, uh, but that, and mindfulness and wisdom can be fully... Um, developed and practiced without any kind of self-view rather than I'm being mindful I've got to be wise or I've got to use my wisdom <laughs> it's rather using those faculties drawing those faculties forth from the heart and giving direction and when we we work with a heart that's free of self-view then it gives a whole different uh, uh, say quality to the uh, engaging in any kind of activity, whether it's the work of meditation, whether it's building a monastery, whether it's uh, going to uh, work in a company, or whether it's looking after your family, or whether it's uh, uh, just driving along the road. Uh, <coughs> because uh, if it's right effort, and if it's guided by mindfulness and wisdom, there isn't that quality of, of burdenness or, or, or stress involved in it. You don't have to believe me, but uh, maybe some of you have experienced this before. When you're just enjoying the journey, you're not really uh, trying to get somewhere, but you're just uh, you're just enjoying the journey. There's a whole different energy to it. You're not sort of uh, uh, in that kind of uh, tense or burdened or stressed state. You're simply with what's going on in the present. So this is a, a, a I find it, the more that we can bring this attitude into our meditation, then that you're working with a a uh, an attitude that doesn't generate uh, alienation or stress. It doesn't generate that quality of of burdenness. So we find that um, there's work going on, but there's direction being given to to the mind, to our, our life. But it's not work that is uh, is kind of challenging or stressful or difficult. It can be quite intense. We can, we can work quite hard, but as if that working, if that effort is free of self-view then uh, there has a whole different quality. It's not that you're not waiting for it to be over. It's not a chore, in other words. Now this also it translates outside of the domain of uh, meditation. 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, <coughs> we'll have time for questions and discussion afterwards. So uh, today, so I'll be very uh, happy to hear what you have to ask, or if this makes sense or doesn't make sense. But um, my experience of, of, of uh, say shifting the attitude in this way is it makes all the difference in the world because the even though it might sound uh, very similar, it's rather like the, you know the left hand and the right hand. Yes, they're they're virtually identical in one respect, like practice uh, guided by me doing my, you know, trying to get concentrated, trying to be good-hearted, and trying to be awake and wise, and and there being um, uh, concentration being being developed, uh, the hindrances being let go of, uh, wisdom being developed. They can look just like each other, but they're also their opposites, right? They uh, they the the uh, <coughs> Whereas, when practice is guided by by craving, by the desire to become, the desire to get rid of, the result is is dukkha. That's like the cause of dukkha is that kind of craving. So, if it's based on on those qualities, then the result is necessarily going to be painful. <coughs> Whereas, if it's based on right effort, which is an aspect of the path, then the result is going to be peaceful. And uh, our beloved teacher, Don Posamedo, was very. Uh, <coughs> very adept at coming up with little kind of dhamma nuggets and uh, one he, he used to say for quite a while was if you start off with ignorance you end up with suffering if you start out with wisdom you end up with nibbana <laughs> you can put that on a t-shirt <laughs> or a teacup <laughs> so if we if we can understand this principle then we can also uh, use it outside of the of the uh, meditation room uh, and apply it into our, our working life because again how many of us in our working life whether we have um, uh, sort of low-key jobs or, or high-profile jobs whether, uh, whether they're very um, <coughs> say complicated or quite simple uh, for many of us we are uh, and I, I know this from my own experience we can get totally focused on desiring success and fearing failure. I want to succeed, I don't want to fail. Even if it's just cooking lunch. <laughs> you want to get it right, you, you fear getting it wrong. And uh, any kind of projects that you do, building something or, or uh, let's say, teaching a class or, or running a, a company or looking after your patients in a hospital, we desire success, we fear failure, right? Again, this is not psychic power. This is <laughs> statistics. We are. This is how we are as human beings. So, the the more that self view is is wedded to the picture, then I want to succeed. I don't want to fail. Success is an absolute. Is felt as an absolute good. When I get it right and I get praised and it goes well. Oh, I this is so wonderful. It's so fantastic. Yes. <laughs> it's the sort of uh, I got what I wanted. Feeling, or the the you know the cat the cat the, uh, getting the cream. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's a total happiness. I wanted this. I got what I wanted. It's a, it's good, but we don't realize in the, the self investment with that that uh, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. That the more that that we buy into that success, then the more we're we're feeding the the painfulness of failure when that comes along. Similarly, if we fail at something, we, we, we try to cook something and it's a complete disaster, or that you, you, know, you, th you don't think it's a disaster, you put it on the table, everyone goes, what's this? Is it supposed to taste like, is it supposed to taste like this? 
and then or you you launch a project or you write a book or you teach a class and all your pupils are falling asleep or the students are all kind of looking at their phones and talking, texting each other while not paying attention to you uh, and so on and so forth then that failure is felt as an absolute bad it's awful it's terrible it, it's, you get the kind of broken into a million pieces feeling at least I would and so we uh, and this is a powerful instinct I was uh, probably a monk of six or seven years before I realized how completely my mind was uh, say wedded to the desire for success and the fear of, fear of failure. It was so strong I didn't even know it was there. I thought it was just like gravity. You know, but, uh, of course success is good. You know, and then uh, failure is terrible. So uh, back in the, the early days of Amravati, um, uh, Ajahn Sumedha, we'd, we'd have a breakfast time meeting and he would, uh, after the, 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 uh, the breakfast things were passed out, then he would give a morning reflection, which sometimes would go on for like 20 minutes, half an hour, 45 minutes sometimes. You didn't really mind your tea getting cold because it was, he'd give these, these wonderful um, discourses every day, kind of world-stopping Dhamma talks every day. And the whole community gathered around. And uh, so everyone's there, and, and, and uh, the Ajahn's at the center. And I was um, monastery secretary, one of the organizing people there. And so every so often, you know, the kind of, uh, there'd be some conversation or things that need to be sorted out. And you make some kind of comment that was very wise or very witty, and everyone would go, ha, 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 ha. And everyone would laugh and smile, and you think, oh, yes. <laughs> you, know, you get that cat getting the cream feeling, and this sort of warm glow. That's a, yes! Of affirmation. And then another day, you'd make some kind of wisecrack or some kind of clever remark, and everyone goes, mm. <laughs> so looking at the carpet and kind of, and oh no, oh no. We see, yeah, the broken into a million pieces feeling. And I began to notice this, because this, I was always ready to pipe up with something, <laughs> as is my wont. And uh, so I began to notice that, well, this is really weird. When everyone smiles and, and, and gives approval noises, then there's this total happiness. And if I say something and it just falls flat or just off the mark or you know, inappropriate, then there's this sort of this ego death. There's this kind of terrible experience. So that, that's really when I started contemplating it. And I, and it was, it was so deeply embedded, I hadn't even noticed it was there. So when we start to let go of self-view in the way that we work, we realize the kind of addiction to success and, the, and, to, and failure as a dynamic. And it's not that we don't try to make effort, just like you still, there's still the, the direction that you give in meditation towards concentration, towards wholesomeness, and letting go of the unwholesome, and, and so forth. So there's still effort in the work that we do, like you, you put your heart into uh, the work that is needed, but rather than being uh, uh, sort of uh, pervaded with with self-view that like I want to succeed, I don't want to fail, and making it all about me, you know, the the, the class that you're teaching or the food that you're cooking or the, the project that you're running, whatever it might be, but rather it's seen as okay, here is work that needs to be done. Um, I'm in I'm involved in it, and I can I can give some direction and put some energy into it. Uh, let's uh, make as decisions that are as well informed as as possible for a a, a, a beneficial outcome, let's see where it goes. Because uh, yeah, uh, also, if you look 
at how things unfold, uh, as I was saying, uh, that success and fa- the more that we say invest in success and failure, um, then the more that we we uh, are, say blind to how life works, and that uh, we we think well, if you succeed at something or something is positive, but it's always positive, it's always beneficial forever, right? We often think that way. Or well, something's bad, then it's, it's a bad thing. It's an absolute badness. So a little exercise I often do with people is to say, okay, uh, think of something that, um, say, five or ten years ago, when it happened, you thought, great, I got the promotion, I married the perfect woman, I got divorced from my husband at last, uh, I've opened the new monastery, yes! And then you were so happy... Uh, your, your book got published and you got rave reviews and oh, this is fantastic, this is great, I'm so happy. Look at this, you're on the Toronto Star. <laughs> you know the Toronto Star is about? Yeah. You get a rave review for your book in the Toronto Star and, and the, oh, this is great, this is fantastic, I feel so happy. Then five or ten years later you look back and you go, I can't believe I was celebrating. Yeah. I thought I was, it was so good to get that book published and now ever since... Uh, everyone's expecting me to do it again. <laughs> and I've got nothing else to say. <laughs> or I, I can't believe when I, I opened that new monastery, I was so happy. Little did I realize what was going to come with it. <laughs> you know. Or when I got married to that person, or I, I, I joined the monastery. You know. At last, I'm a bhikkhu. Hooray! It'll be down here from here, downhill from here on. <laughs> and so... We look back and then that which we were celebrating and so happy about then 10 years later, oh, I can't believe it was, uh, I was so happy. Similarly, if you look at back 5 or 10 years and something that at the time was a disaster, some kind of horrible illness or you get fired from a job or your, your finances collapse, you have to leave your home, everything falls apart and you know, it's, 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 it's wretched, it's terrible, it's a disaster. And then you look back from now and you think, well, uh, I, it, was a, it was awful at the time, but yeah, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Any of you ever had those experiences? Yes, a few heads nodding, yeah, quite a few. So this is how we are. So what does that tell you about success and failure? What does that tell us about positive and negative experiences? If something that we're celebrating today, in 10 years' time, you can think, oh man, <laughs> what was I thinking? So it means that uh, when something difficult and painful happens, then we can look at it with a with a weather eye. With a well, it's painful now and it's a disaster. This is exactly what I didn't want. But what can be learned from this? Uh, okay, maybe there's some good that can come from this. Okay, what what, what can we uh, learn from this situation? Similarly, when everything goes well, um, to think well, this is really sweet. Uh, my project got got. Um, approved and uh, we've opened the monastery my book got published I've got rave reviews well let's not get drunk on it uh, you notice that you getting rave reviews means that your five other friends in the writing club now feel insanely jealous say <laughs> so, mm, well I don't really care about the book I care about my friendships now what can I do to, to stay connected to these good people because they're all grumpy that they didn't get published and I did so so <coughs> If we let go of self-view, then we do the best. The, the, the work that is done is, is guided, again, by mindfulness and wisdom. We do it in the best way that, that we can. 
but <coughs> it's um, uh, say it's not um, say pervaded by that stressful quality of, of the desire for success and the fear of failure but rather we take action guided by mindfulness and wisdom and with the it, with the framework of okay this looks like a good way forward let's see what happens and particularly let's learn from whatever happens so uh, a phrase that Lumpur Cha would use and is um, the title of one of the books of his teachings is called everything is teaching us and so that's a, a really good uh, framework for for our lives to uh, rather than thinking in terms of desiring success and fearing failure uh, what can we learn from it if things go well what do we learn from it if things go badly what do we learn from it if things are just completely mediocre what do we learn from it <laughs> Uh, and if we have that kind of an attitude, then we are able to uh, turn every every situation that we experience, health and sickness, gain and loss, praise and criticism, uh, pleasure and pain, to uh, to advantage, not just for ourselves, but for uh, those around us. How are we doing, Tony? Is that that's great. <laughs> Keep going or Q&A if you want. Um, so I think, well, I don't, uh, most of you I don't know. I think I, about, apart from about three people, I've only met the rest of you today. <laughs> so uh, rather than just rabbit on endlessly, uh, I'm happy to open things up for some discussion questions. And so uh, I don't have to say don't be shy, there's a hand up already. <laughs> if you can speak up so everyone can hear the question. We were talking about uh, people who've had long meditation practice and were struggling, and uh, maybe couldn't bring that, bring that practice into their everyday life. And I, I remember in one of your books you were talking about Ajahn Amato. He, um, he got frustrated with uh, in a retreat where everybody was a fanatical meditator, but they weren't getting the results that. John Sumato was hoping for and he declared stop meditating so I'm wondering if you can comment on that and <laughs> I have a second question as well which is well, let's, shall we do the first one first oh, well if you like the second <laughs> one's easier <laughs> um, well let's say one at a time okay so uh, yeah I was there uh, when that uh, when he did this was in the late 80s and um, uh, it was really exa on exactly this theme, because it was uh, about eight, 1988, so Amravati had been open you know, three or four years, and we had the winter retreat, January, February, uh, at the beginning it was just two months, and then later on three months. And so uh, it was a very quiet and focused time of the year. But um, yeah, Ajahn Sumedho is a very sensitive kind of a guy. So it picks up on moods, and just by looking around, and often in the meditation, you just you, you uh, open your eyes and you see him sort of looking around the room, <laughs> scanning, and you just see that, that he's just reading people's body language and their expressions and their their posture and so forth. And then, uh, uh, so a couple of weeks into the retreat, maybe ten days into the retreat, he could see that there was a sort of, <laughs> sort of hell bent on nibbana kind of. Uh, Attitude. People just sort of really, um, uh, their quality of sort of tryingness, and the sort of that the sense of um, tense 
intent. <laughs> That's not too weird a term. So there's like a tension in their in their their uh, efforts in meditation, and uh, also because uh, it was a few days in the retreat, some people who had already established quite good samadhi who kind of <laughs> obviously enjoying a day at the beach, you know, just you know the mind kind of clear and bright and quiet, and so uh, so he would he just said stop meditating, don't meditate. And uh, because uh, this way of that we turn meditation into a thing that I'm doing, it becomes this this job or this task, this this action. And what he was trying to to point out is that uh, <coughs> the meditation is a tool to arrive at a, an end. It's like if you're trying to get to Disarana, and you're in your car and you've already got here, but you keep driving around. Yeah, around the you know the parking lot, around the road, it's like well, you've you've arrived at Tisara. Get out! You stop the car and get out. You've arrived. No, no, no. Uh, uh, I, I need to get to Tisarana. You know, I'm, I'm driving to Tisara. Well, you're already here. Stop the car. Get out. Stop the car. Stop. Stop. You're here. So it was that kind of attitude of um, that he was trying to convey because he could see that uh, most of the people in the group were quite experienced in meditation and had you know, reasonable qualities of, of focus but that was not it and also just enjoying it kind of quote unquote a day at the beach you know, just the mind just absorbed in a you know, beautiful bright benign you know, which is enjoyable to enjoy the sunshine of the, of the bright mind but uh, he could see that there was a kind of um, intoxication in that or just sort of being lost in that so that he was uh, trying to help uh, us to, to see that, that doing this. And uh, when we were in um, Ann Arbor the other day, this was uh, uh, with a group of people uh, at the university in Ann Arbor, and uh, a similar theme came up, and uh, they were talking about this uh, Tibetan uh, practice, Dzogchen, uh, that uh, a friend of ours, Sokni Rinpoche, uh, in, in describing their approach, he calls it undistracted non-meditation. <laughs> undistracted non-meditation, and it's, it's interesting because it's exactly the same kind, exactly the same principle. And so, uh, Ajahn Sumedha was teaching this kind of thing without ever even having heard of Dzogchen. Some Dzogchen practitioners sort of hear him giving Dhamma talks, thinking, "Who is his Lama?" You know. <laughs> Uh, Ajahn Chah, you know. <laughs> but it, so the the language is very very similar. Also, um, Kema Ananda, Canadian, um, who started uh, the Arrow River. Oh yes, yeah. Ananda, he used an expression, diligent effortlessness. <laughs> that uh, if you ever go and stay with Ajahn Punadamo at Arrow River, yeah. So you might be familiar with that term, diligent effortlessness. So. It's pointing at that doing this, that me doing something, because the, the Dhamma is self-sustaining. The, the Dhamma is, is as it is. Yet you don't have to make the Dhamma. You don't even have to practice the Dhamma. The Dhamma is the Dhamma already. <laughs> so that we, uh, like, say, Tisarana is what it is. You don't have to make it. it it's here to come to. So that the... Uh, up to a certain point, you know, you use concentration and the development of insight, 
to uh, an enable the mind to awaken to the Dhamma. It essentially, ena enable the mind to awaken to its own nature, so that that <coughs> that awake that awakening, or the, the the sort of the progress of qualities towards that quality of awakening. There's there's a certain amount of doing and action and directing, but w once the the mind is is awake and alert, then there is there, there's nothing to do to do, other than to awaken to uh, the the mind's own nature. Like if you've already arrived at Tisarana, you don't need to get to Tisarana. You follow? Yes. Yeah. So, so that you cross the river on the raft, and you don't need the raft. And yeah. yeah. So that uh, what um, Arjun Samadhi was doing was pointing to like. You know, you 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 you're all getting caught up in in doing, but remember what it is that you're doing this for. You know, the, and to, if you've if you've arrived at that quality uh, of awakened awareness, stop meditating. <laughs> Don't be a, a person who's doing something. Let go of the person. Let go of the doingness, and let the the mind simply be awake. And that's been really the theme of his. Pretty much every Dhamma talk he's given since about 1991 is that. <laughs> As Ajahn Sajito put it, uh, we were editing the five volumes of Lumpur Samedo's teachings. Ajahn Sajito and I. You're familiar with Ajahn Sajito? He was here mm -hmm. last winter. So, uh, I mean, with, with, all, with the greatest respect in the world, uh, Ajahn Sajito said, well, after 1991, every Dhamma talk of, of Lumpur Samedo's is be awake. <laughs> with various kinds of gravy, <laughs> slightly different sources, but it's that's pretty much it. You know, not being disrespectful, but that's kind of it. Just wake up, be awake, and what? And he said, "What else is there to say?" You had a second question. Yeah, um, I wonder if you ever get back to Thailand, and if you will be there. I go about twice a year. To Wat Bapong, to Wat Pananachat, to Bangkok, Chiang Mai. But I'm interested if if Ajahn V has any comments about that last question. Any responses? Or you just want me to talk Well, I'm I'm equally influenced by Ajahn Samedo. It seems to me once you. Like I, I always talk about you kind of get the joke, and the joke is you get the punchline. If you go to the punchline, you can do this forever and not really get it. So the punchline is it's like this. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. And, and if you get that, then the whole sense of self falls away right there. If you don't get that, you go crazy trying to get enlightened. The worst thing you can do is try to get enlightened. You know, it's just such an oxymoron. So, the the I found the it was the trust in that which was the challenge. It's like this. Yeah, I know it's like this. How else could it be? Yeah, it's a technology. Blah 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 blah. But the stopping of the mind after I've said it's like this. Now that was the challenge. And so my challenge was around doubt and not trusting. And Lompo Sumedo's constant. Uh, Encouragement. That's it. That's it. Trust that. Trust that. Trust that. You know, and that language of trust, uh, not not in a kind of belief system or a kind of Theravad um, scriptural belief system, but trusting in the awakened mind. Once I began to get it, understand it, and do it, and the doing is simply remembering. It's not becoming. 
It's just remembering the punchline. Even in the midst of really crappy states of mind, you say, oh, this is just feels crappy. And you've got it. You've got it. And if you can, I found if I can trust that, then things just keep falling away. So the elegance of, of letting go becomes very apparent. It's a very elegant and simple, simple uh, teaching. But it's, it's subtle. It's very, very subtle. It's just very obvious. So we're both m- much influenced by Lopo Semedo, and, and uh, we're so really, really grateful for that directness of his teaching. Lots of good gravy, too. Lots <laughs> <laughs> of good gravy. So any other questions? Don't be shy. Yes. Thank you for coming to Pisar. I just wanted to say I really liked your book. Um, Which one? Oh. Finding the Missing Piece. You've written many, but that's an instructive for people who are just setting out. And it was very secular in a way, or very. So I just wanted to say how much it's been appreciated by many beings. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the intention was. Uh, in putting it together was it could be given to anybody any kind of background uh, with no knowledge of Buddhism or meditation say here if they're interested can you teach you know, medis- can you give me the basics of meditation say here yeah. <laughs> read this yeah. so that uh, I'm glad that it works in that way you were using it at the United Church were you or beg your pardon you were using it at the church yes at the Unitarian Church a little group meets to hold a space around my phones and Perfect, because people come from all over. But we've run out. Yeah, we have an Amravati as well. So. Um, but you don't ship outside of the UK. Uh, they all come from uh, Malaysia okay. these days. Okay. But uh, you, you're welcome to print. I can send you the files. You can print more copies here if you like. <laughs> yes. How do you transition from Good question. Um, well, again, uh, uh, Ajahn Sumedha has, uh, uh, over the years, there's a few different methods that he encouraged that uh, I found very helpful. Um, one is, uh, the, 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 most of them revolve around reflective, use of reflective thought and learning to be mindful of your thinking patterns. So you get getting to know the attitudes that are there and essentially to challenge them. So one of the ways that I use a lot is just naming what the feeling is exactly. So that, say, if you're asked a question that you don't know the answer to and someone is really eager for you to, uh, to give them the answer, then I would reflect, oh, this is the... This is the, someone's just asked me a question and I'm not quite sure what to say and they really want an answer feeling. <laughs> That's what this is. Or um, tra- I, I developed this a lot when I was, tra- I was traveling in India for a year on uh, pilgrimage and uh, I wanted a really simple practice to, to really uh, carry me th- through the year and to, to apply. And so I just, and since, uh, and I've been in India a few times, and it has uh, uh, some fame, some reputation for being uh, challenging and difficult, physically and emotionally, and uh, when you're on the road there, or not, even not on the road. (laughs) And so I decided, okay, I'll spend a year just meditating on feeling, 
And so I particularly developed it during that year in India, and I found it so helpful. Like, this is arriving at the train station, having been told your train is going to come 18 hours after it was scheduled, and it has actually already arrived and gone. <laughs> Feeling. <laughs> That's what this is. And so that your mind's about to launch into, That's ridiculous. You told it was going to be here at 6 in the evening, and, it's, and you say it came at 2 o'clock this afternoon. How can this be? But then you catch the mind going into that, and so this is the, uh, that's what this is. So you, you have to, it's, it's demand, it demands quite a, a quality of attention, recognizing your thought patterns and, and the emotion, sensations that are there. But I found it extraordinarily effective. I, I use this virtually uh, every day in my life, Amravati, you know, on the road, where just that simple act of naming the feeling that's there, or the mood, without any commentary, without any sort of should be there, shouldn't be there, just here it is. Because in that moment, the, the mind is not entangled in the, the mood, whether it's pleasant or painful. Like, or just like if it's something pleasant, like this is the someone just praised me for my book feeling. <laughs> it's very sweet. Yeah, that, that's a sweet feeling. It's rather than uh, letting that be sort of bought into, then there's the, oh, this is the sweet feeling of, of having one of your babies admi being admired. That's what this is. And uh, so you have to be quick on your feet because our tendency is to believe in our moods and believe in our patterns of thinking as valid and true all the time. Or that you judge something as awful or you judge something as good. You believe those judgments. And so it's, you have to be pretty sort of attentive to say, oh, that's judging something as awful or something as frightening or something as good or bad. Or, uh, but <clears throat> just that simple process of catching it, and not even with any judgment of, like, I shouldn't feel this way. Uh, like, <clears throat> but rather, you just catch, th this is the, he's got one, what about me? That's not fair feeling. <laughs> You know, you're not saying I shouldn't be jealous, but rather that's what this feeling is. And in that moment, that which knows the feeling is not mixed, is not entangled with the feeling, because you know that which knows the person is not a person. That which knows uh, this identity, this this uh, perceptions, is not part of that. And in that, in that moment, that's being refreshed. Another um, one of uh, which Ajahn Sumedhi would have a lot of fun with. I'm sure Ajahn V will remember. It's kind of taking things to absurdity uh, so that you notice your emotions. It's like thinking the unthinkable. Like if you're really annoyed with someone and you say, if you, so that you're, you, you take the feeling and you inflate it rather than thinking something's unwholesome or unskillful, um, <clears throat> then you inflate it and make it absurd. And uh, you can have a lot of fun with this. So it's like if, if someone's annoying you, uh, you're, in a, you're in some situation someone has just done something that's irritating then to say <coughs> I'm suffering because of you if you were different I would be happy <laughs> or even more extreme it would be much better if you were dead if you could just die my life would be fine and why, you, if you state it that way or, or you desire something like, if I could just have that I would be happy and you, you can't even get to the end of the sentence without cracking up. 
And sometimes, you know, you, you find yourself actually laughing out loud you know, in the meditation hall. You know, because it's ridiculous. But it's not like, I should, I should not believe in that. It's not coming from a should. But by taking that, that kind of defilement and, and, and inflating it, like, that's not fair. Why has she got one? I want one too. If I had one, I would be happy. I'm a better person than she is. It's ridiculous. And so, but the kind of ridiculousness or the childishness of it, it you don't have to force that. It's just you, you kind of amplify it and it just sort of falls apart on its own. And so that, that's uh, uh, extremely um, effective. But again, you have to be sort of quick to catch the 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 moods and judgments a self view if it's if it's in if it's wedded to a an emotion or a, a, an attitude it's harder to see because we we tend to believe in emotions much more easily than than say uh, just other aspects of our experience if there's a a um, investment there but if you can develop enough of a mindfulness and to be able to, to spot the, the patterns of thinking and if you know you have a certain tendency or you set that up at the beginning of the day then uh, and you catch it then it's uh, it's can be a lot of, it can be very enjoyable also just seeing it fall away and that sense of well, that's ridiculous you know. then you also don't take yourself so seriously because if you just do like a concept, you know, I shouldn't have self-view. Yeah. <laughs> Again, it's an oxymoron. You know. if, only I, if only I didn't have self-view, I would be happy. <laughs> but again, if you spell that out, then you kind of laugh. It's like, if only I wasn't me, everything would be great. <laughs> and that, that's actually when... Uh, when uh, I... Because again, I, I, when I first heard Lumpur Sameda saying this kind of thing, I realise he's been saying this for the last ten years. <laughs> Hadn't really clicked. But uh, one feeling I used to have very often was, if only I was somebody else, everything would be fine. And so that was the, that was what I used to use this for at the beginning. Was, if only I wasn't, me, if I was just somebody else, everything would be great. Anybody else. And then I would use this kind of method, and I just you kind of you catch the thought, and you sort of replay it. You can clear everything else out of the way and replay it slowly. If only I was somebody else, I would be happy. You're like, That's ridiculous. You know, because you know it's not true. But you know it's your heart. Your own intuitive wisdom knows it's not true. It's not just like a, your brain thinking about it. But you know it's, it's ridiculous. Any, any other handy tips on letting go of self-view? Well, I think what what I I pick up on is that once you get the punchline, once you understand that it is about the awake mind, then you you develop your own skillful means, which are usually like a simple statement or a simple practice, which then you do for four years, for five years. So for the last two years, I've been doing this is in awareness, just that. This is in awareness, and that is very powerful for me. But it's coming from getting the punchline. 
Uh, and then it just something about space and awareness being conjoined for me, something about that phraseology just really, really works. And do all the time. All the time, all the time, all the time. And uh, then the insight gets stronger about what non-attachment is, what letting go is, from that basic awakened mind. If you don't have the awakened mind, then uh, trying these techniques, if you don't, if you don't get that, uh, that right understanding, the trying these techniques can be just trying to do something that someone else does, but it doesn't come from necessarily from right understanding. And 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 then the like the application of this kind of insight constantly for years. You know, it's not like just doing meditation ten minutes. It's like twenty-four-seven life. This life is like that, and then it's very very powerful. Yes, absolutely. Uh, another question. So my question is about um, how to be helpful. So if I'm with someone, say a good friend or relative, that is really suffering from their anger, and so I'm always stuck with how to be helpful because I want to give advice, but I know that <laughs> that never works. But what can I do to? help me keep my center and in fact be helpful? Well, very good question. Could people hear the question? Could people hear the question? Yeah. So, uh, again, not to be harping too much on the same theme, but <laughs> the, the less self-view there is in it, the better. Uh, one of the, these, like these little phrases that we can I have a few that, are, that uh, I've dwelt on over the years and, and that... Uh, one that uh, I reflected on a lot in the past is uh, the kindest thing that you can do for people is not to create them. Which is to say, if you like, you're, you know, this person that you you're trying to help who's got a lot of anger in their system, and think, oh, what can I do to help Susan, or Joe, or whatever? Uh, <coughs> and then we we create that person. We create Susan or Joe or Steve or Sarah. And, we carry them around and we've created me who's got to help them she's out there I'm in here and I've got to do something to make that person all right so unconsciously we create a, a division a duality and so when you meet you're not meeting them you're meeting your your program you're meeting your projection uh, of them so the uh, the in a sense the most effective way of helping others is not to create them but to be uh, uh, as responsive as possible when you meet, but not to have a program and not to have an agenda. So as soon as you think, oh, when I meet you know, Sarah or Joe or Steve, I'm gonna, I know what they need. I'm gonna, and then guaranteed you're gonna be out of tune, mm -hmm. absolutely, because it's uh, out of the quality of your say com communication or communion, the sort of connection that you have with someone else, that. That sense of oh we're all, we're on the same page I, I'm relating with this other being, um, therefore there's an openness or a, a, a respectfulness, a relatedness. If you're talking at someone, you've got a, a script or an agenda, then you, they they know I'm being talked at or like don't you don't you don't try and help me. Yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, um, a number of years ago there was this program called uh, Nonviolent Communication. 
which a lot of people found very helpful. Uh, it was one of these sort of fads that happened in the Sangha. So there were, and there was, uh, so some people were very enthusiastic about it, and uh, and so, um, and there, there certainly some very good things could come from that as a, a skillful ways of communication. But oftentimes people are so fixed on their 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 NVC program that when you're actually talking, you think, "Oh God, I'm being NVC'd." <laughs> but can you just drop that? Can we just can we just talk and not have you doing that thing on me, please? <laughs> you know, it was well intentioned, but you felt like you were having this program sort of sprayed on you. And uh, so there's there's a division there. So I'm not maligning NVC as a thing, but just the way that it can be picked up. So I, I find the most helpful thing is to attune the mind to the situation because what's the right thing in one moment, three seconds later, is totally wrong. And it changes you know, moment by moment. So when it can be the right thing to crack a joke, two seconds later there's absolutely no way. That's the time to be serious and cool. And then there's a time to just listen and then, okay, now speak up. And you can't, you can't predict that, you can't plan that. And the, the more you script a conversation in advance, the more, you, you know, the more wrong you are. I, I used to script everything, and it was another interesting thing about the beginning of monastic life, so I saw my mind writing scripts for conversations, and after about five or six years, nobody ever followed my script. <laughs> Yeah, when I see Ajahn Sumedha, then I'm going to say this, and he's going to say that, and then, then, and then when he says that, I'll say this, and then when I say this, he will say that. <laughs> nobody ever followed the script. And it wasn't intentional, but after about five or six years, something went... You know. It's similar when you're married. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't tried that. But <laughs> I, uh, I, kind of, I married the Sangha when I was 21. <laughs> so, and I have 40 children. You know, <laughs> So it's uh, similar, but not quite the same. <laughs> but uh, also, there's a little book. If you there's a little pile of those books that the 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 one with a reddish cover, the third one down. Not to be shamelessly self-promoting, but if this little <laughs> booklet has got a lot in there about this kind of thing. And so this is a, a, a four little books about the Brahma Viharas, the um, the sublime abidings, and that one's on compassion. And it's uh, it's all it's about helping, and also the ways that we don't help, <laughs> and uh, so that if you fish one of those off the shelf, then to save me the trouble of saying it all, <laughs> then uh, you might find a few useful things in there. But I feel that's the core of it, and uh, that um, trusting that the words that are needed or the silence that is needed will find itself, because sometimes just that. You know that somebody is really upset and really angry, and you, you, you kind of felt like you, you know what you need to say to them, and then you realise, you know, when you, when you're in the middle of that situation, and I, I've found myself in this, where you just say, I don't know what to say, and because that that is coming from a place of coolness and caring, they then somehow it can reach in, and the other person says, Yeah, I'm really ranting, aren't I? Sorry about that. <laughs> and then, then you have a connection, and, and then you can maybe talk about their, what, what's, what's upsetting to them. But uh, it's really that paying attention but letting go of agendas that is the, the core.
piece. There's a hand at the back there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, good question. I have a, a bit of a campaign against meant to be. Uh, it's not it's not a Buddhist teaching, as far as I uh, understand. Uh, the Buddha was not a fatalist. Uh, the, the, the 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 sort of linchpin of the Buddha's teaching is that we can make choices, and our choices make a difference. So the idea of it was meant to be. Um, it's understandable, it's, it's as much in the folklore of the West as the East, the sort of predestination and such like. But it's it's very counter to also my, you know, the, the intuition that I feel, and also the Buddha's teaching. Um, you can see that things have a very, had a sort of very fortunate set of circumstances. And you can look back and see, oh, because of this, 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 then we ended up here. And this is great. But it's rather like if you, if you go out a, a tree, and you go out one of the branches and a smaller branch out one of the one of the, the end of one of the twigs. You see, there's a there's a, 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 a absolutely perfect pathway from the end of your twig down the branch all the way to the trunk. There's also another ten thousand twigs <laughs> that you know, that come from the same trunk. So yeah, when you look back, there's a sequence of of different events that led here, but it's not fixed or or or, or uh, predestined. And so uh, I. I understand that sort of it's meant to be as a as an attitude, but I, I don't feel it's skillful, um, and uh, it can be very make us very passive or um, uh, say unattentive to the the choices that we have, if you if you see what I mean. And so that sometimes it's a very painful circumstance that we've ended up as, and, it's, and then if we have the same, it's meant to be I'm being punished for some reason. Again, the point is not all the details of what have led up to that but the key thing in the Buddhist teaching is that the present moment is preconditioned what, what, each, of it is, what each of us experiences now in this tent in Ontario uh, Canada 2018 is the, the, the sum of all the other experiences and events of the universe that have happened up to now so it's preconditioned but what we do with this moment is entirely up to each one of us so in this moment, the mind has a choice, and those choices make a difference. So uh, I don't know if uh, Ajahn Viridhamma would have a different perspective or have other things to say, but I feel that that life is is more accurate to say life is preconditioned, not predetermined, and that yeah, and the causes that the that we plant now will have effects in the future. So we can't change the causes that have happened in the past. So in this moment. It's up to us to receive the effects of past causes, the choice to come to Tisarana at this time, or the choice to, um, to, um, say, get interested in Buddhism, or the choice to be um, asking a question. <laughs> yeah, that uh, the 
the, he can't undo the causes that have happened. But in this moment, it, we, can, we can be open to the effects of all those causes, or not, or we can be biased. And how we handle the, the patterns of the present uh, that, as they are experienced, that plants causes for the future. So if, we, if the attitude that, that there is in the heart to the present moment, and the way that, that the mind relates to it, is very is skillful, that that plants the causes of clarity and peace that will ripen it in the future. So I feel it's really important to not abdicate from the the potential that each moment has, but rather to see that what <laughs> what attitude the mind has to the present experience in the moment that is supremely important, and the choices that we make here and now then. Uh, in terms of attitude and, and action, speech, then uh, that's where we can make a difference in our life. We can't change the past and the future hasn't arrived yet, so this this is where life happens. Very keeps negative. Is, uh, talk about... Yeah. <laughs> that meant-to-be philosophy, where it gets really negative is in what we call prosperity consciousness. You've ever heard of that, where people think because they're wealthy, they deserve to be wealthy, and people who are poor deserve to be poor. And there's actually a, a name for that, prosperity consciousness, and some some people will advocate that, and so is a lack of compassion. Uh, I think, I won't mention names, but some, I guess I might get arrested, some, some systems of thought they call the prosperity consciousness. So you you think, well, I, I was meant to be wealthy, powerful, and so on, and us poor people were meant to be pathetic. And that's very, very harmful and very, very dangerous. You have that, in, yeah. that kind of idea. Yeah. You didn't hear that. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it in, in America? In, yeah. I, I lived in the USA for 15 years or so, and... Uh, that is very, very um, prevalent, not just with sort of certain fundamentalist groups that, you know, God wants you to be rich philosophy, but also within the, um, in the, in the medical field that um, you're sick because you're bad karma in the past. So, you know, you're, you're sick or you're disadvantaged because you deserve it. And that, um, so that, uh, uh, so it's a very fatalistic, and not just from, from the Asian background, but you know, as much from the European ancestry community as well and uh, I feel that's extremely destructive and, and unhelpful because um, uh, again another of these little booklets <laughs> just by chance um, is about sort of superstition and, and fatalism and uh, the, uh, the kind of way that we um, in our habits of thinking that people presume that what we experience now is completely the result of actions in a past lifetime, uh, and the, the, so this is my karma. But uh, the the Buddha, in the Buddha's teaching, he says uh, that individual choice and, and personal action is only one of the influences to what we experience here and now. And what are they called the the niyamas, the five niyamas, or the five laws of nature? And so karma is only one of those. So the first one is utu niyama, which literally means the weather. That's the laws of physics and chemistry. So we all experience gravity, right? That's not personal. None of us invented gravity. Right? None of us were involved in a discussion about the weight of the electron. You know? 
I would venture to suggest. So the laws of physics, of physics and chemistry, we experience their effects, but they're not personal. Uh, the laws of biology, as human beings, as the beings who breathe, who eat, uh, the, the, the laws of you know, f uh, social ordering within our human tribe, you know, these are all part of the, what's called the uh, Bija Niyama, or the laws of biology. Kama Niyama is the third one, which is the, uh, uh, the law of cause and effect in terms of, of individual action. So that's where... Yes, you, the choice to say this word has its effect and the choice to say another word has another effect. So that's the, the third one is Kamaniyama. Then the fourth one is uh, Jitaniyama, which means the laws of psychology, how the mind works. So again, that's not personal. You, you know, I didn't invent how memory operates or how imagination operates or how emotions work in the mind or how pleasure and pain operate in the brain. These... The, the, these are part of the laws of, of uh, biology, the laws of, of uh, the way the mind works um, in terms of, of our mental activity. And then the fifth one is Dhamma which is uh, the fundamental laws of nature um, in terms of the physical, mental, and uh, the you know, beyond physical and mental, the uh, transcendent, uh, transcendent dimensions of reality, how the whole ordering of... of uh, the, the universe uh, fits together and the laws by which it, which it operates at its most fundamental levels. So each one of us experiences the effects of those five laws all the time. So the physics and chemistry, biology, uh, action, uh, psychology, and of Dhamma, of the you know, conventional and ultimate reality. The, the, the so all of us experience those operating all the time. So our choices, our actions, are only one small part of that, one bit of it. And a lot of what we experience, that we take very personally, is vijaniyama and, and chitaniyama, that, that we feel jealousy, or we feel anger, or we feel excitement, you know, we feel attracted to someone, or irritated by someone, we feel intimidated, or we feel aggressive. It's not personal. Uh, like Ajahn Sumedha would often talk about how there was... Um, he always thought of himself as a sort of compassionate, friendly person. And this one monk at Wapapong in, in the early days, when, when he was a young monk, he, whenever he saw him, he wanted to hit him. <laughs> and uh, this is weird. Why do I hate this monk? I, every, I, I don't just dislike him. I want to hit him or kick him. This is weird. And then he realized, because also he's a very reflective person, he thought, yeah, he's, he's always cowering. He's kind of shrinking away. He's putting out all these signals of being uh, hurt or, 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 or inferior or afraid. And so it's arousing this aggression in me. So I don't actually feel it. But when he's around, his posture and his manner triggers this aggressive feeling. And then when he goes away, I stop feeling aggressive. It's completely non-personal. It's like the eye views that form of somebody kind of... Ooh cowering you know because in the pack that's obviously the, the gamma dog and, and so the, you become the, at least the beta dog if not the alpha dog and so that's how we are as, as people you know. uh, and so uh, he, uh, he often mentioned that in Dhamma talks how it's really not personal and uh, so that the uh, when we 
look at our life in that way and we see that so much of what we experience and take personally the feeling of jealousy or fear or anger or excitement oh I shouldn't be so excited or I shouldn't be so jealous it's like so much of it it's just the conditions arise that emotion is triggered and it goes away again there's no thing there you don't have to take it personally but then we think I've got a jealousy problem I've got an anger problem I've got a lust problem I've got a greed problem and it's if it's view, if it's seen with right view, then that no karma needs to be created around it. <laughs> doesn't need to be made personal. Doesn't need to be personalized. So, uh, be, if you're interested in that little, it's the purple one. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> shameless self-promotion. <laughs> it's called uh, "Who's Pulling the Strings." <laughs> Complete coincidence. <laughs> she is not there by design. <laughs> this is not rigged. <laughs> it wasn't meant to be. <laughs> can I can ask in, in Thai language? No. That's how I I went to um, last year I went to um, see Parajan Tanimat Bunyawad. He, he, he did train with Rampusha um, in, in, in Ubon Rajatani. Achantanachandan. Yeah. Achantan. Yeah. Uh, um, he talked about um, uh, training in his son and um, all different kinds of food. And he said, but he never eat it before. But then I had trouble when I had stress. He said, try to practice, um, you know, to try to look at the food the same, same level or same thing, you know, not just or this I like, I can eat this mm -hmm. or this. Um, but for myself, I when I have stress <coughs> from work or from anything, <laughs> I I can't do that. You know, when I have something I like, I eat more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I try, I try to get what he, what he tried to tell us how to, um, you know, cross our mind mm -hmm. about the food, <coughs> and or even I I want to know about lungusha. Uh, eat only one time a day. I I want to know how. How can I do that? <laughs> 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 because, yeah, I love food Give somebody else the key to the fridge. This <laughs> 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 looks like your partner up here. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, give him the key to the fridge. Get a lock for the fridge. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, the uh, you know, the Isan food is is yeah. <laughs> is challenging. Yeah, so some of the things that are offered, because for the, the locals, when, when the, we were first there in the 70s, you know, they, they'd only, the, the king of Thailand had only just introduced this um, mar kind of market gardening program. So up until the mid-70s, they never grew any kind of vegetables apart from rice, um, and they planted fruit trees like mango trees or papaya. But they had no concept of growing vegetables. So, but by the time we came there, they were just that had just started, like growing pumpkins and uh, green beans and sweet corn and such. But up until the the mid seventies, early seventies, that didn't exist in the Isan. So that vegetables equals stuff that you gather from the forest, like yams and leaves. That's it. And so, um, and the the soil is like sand. It's like so sort of grey sand. So it's very very poor soil. So that the the local saying was. Um, if it moves and it hasn't got wheels, you can eat it. 
which for the vegetarians uh, amongst us is maybe a challenging thought, but it's true because, and then when they first started Wat Pananashat, uh, Ajahn Sumedha was encouraging the villagers to just offer vegetarian food, and uh, you were probably there. And they were in tears. Like, <laughs> you're going to die, and we'll and we'll be blamed, and we don't want to lose you. We can't we can't live on vegetables because they their experience was if you don't eat sticky rice and meat or, or, or ants or fish or frogs or whatever then you will die that was their experience and so uh, the, the the king the, the late king was very responsible in, in developing um, uh, gardening programs and, and spreading seeds and gardening methods all around Thailand so he's very, very skillful in that respect but still the local villages you still get a curry made of red ants it's, and that's not the name. It's not called red ant curry. as a name. It's actually a curry made of red ants. Uh, or um, in Kamsa'i, they used to have like this. That was that was really challenging. They had this. They uh, rats um, put inside bamboo, kind of yeah. squashed up and put inside bamboo tubes and then roasted. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, whole whole frogs or whole toads. It, plopped in your bowl so <laughs> equanimity was pretty hard to find <laughs> <laughs> so you know that, that was uh, so uh, I'm not surprised that it was even that Tanajandan had it challenging to be even minded and there's a frog sitting in your bowl kind of <laughs> looking at you I mean they're dead but you know, it was not easy but uh, I think the, the question you were really asking was about comfort food. So in that situation, it's not really about eating. It's about the uh, comfort. And uh, in terms of the neuroscience of it, the, uh, the, what makes us happy is, is not things, it's endorphins. It's in, the, in the, the chemicals that get released in the brain. And so that then, if there's a food that we really like, we've got a strong emotional uh, attachment to, like ice cream or durian or pizza <laughs> or bala, you know. <laughs> or for the English, marmite. <laughs> you know. the, the, there's a sort of, it's the source of all goodness. In, Ameri in the US, it's peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> in England, it's mar uh, marmite on toast. Because when you're a baby, that you're weaned on bread and marmite. They're called marmite soldiers. So the first taste you have, apart from your, your mother's milk or baby food, is marmite. So you imprint on marmite. So for many people in Britain, that's the comfort food. Or Heinz tomato soup. So I'm not kidding. You know, it's like, oh, tomato soup. All is right with the world. <laughs> oh, marmite. Oh, like, oh, peanut butter and jelly. But then in Canada, what do you have? Craft dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Poutine. <laughs> maple syrup. Anything with maple syrup. Anything with maple syrup. <laughs> maple syrup yeah. So, but yeah, the taste of maple syrup, probably the smell and taste of maple syrup. It's like, ah, all is good. It's, it's, it's not about eating. It's about the endorphins. It's about that kind of happiness flush. The, the associations that come from the taste and the smell. It's like, <sighs> yes, true, because I, I'm from Thailand. I have to have um, 
Song Tham Pung. You're gonna feel better. That's right, Tham Mo Hong. Tham Mo Hong. Tham Mo Hong. Tham Mo Hong. All is right with the world. So it's often the smell and the texture as much as it's not really about the eating. It's the, the associations that you have with like childhood and that comfort, probably what you, your mother gave you. And so then it's triggering those, those messages in your, in your sanya, in your mind. Uh, and then that sort of, all is right with the world. So every country will have its own thing. Like in Japan, I think the seaweed and uh, the kind of nori, the the f- the, the the taste of, of seaweed, nori is uh, for Japanese people is sort of. <sighs> so each culture will have its own form. So, um, but also just in terms of of being a psychologically supportive, I say, if you're feeling frazzled and and anxious and you know, it's it's not a bad thing to have some comfort food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's understandable. If it after the first kilo, then you know, <laughs> cool it. But uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I think sometimes we need that when we 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 need that kind of just everything's all right. You know, it's just we're humans. We, we, if we say, I, sh- I shouldn't need this, I, I have to be independent, I have to, I have to be strong, then we, we, sometimes we can just be coming from a very idealistic position and, and uh, it's too much. We, we, we uh, get out of balance. And so just, I think that was one of the great skills of Lumpur Chao was that he knew that when, that it was okay, you know, give, them, give people a, uh, a bit of what they, they, they feel comfortable with. But he was very attached to Chinese noodles. <laughs> that was his comfort food. Mm. And look, seriously, so Lumpur Chao, so, so Chinese noodles were banned at Wabapong because Lumpur Chao saw his attachment to them. <laughs> and they have one noodle day. They still do, even after Lumpur has been gone for 20 years. They have, uh, they have Chinese noodle day at Wabapong. <laughs> one day in the year. <laughs> Should we wind up? Maybe people, we'll wind up, yeah. People are going, yeah. Just one more question, maybe. Uh, just one more question. Uh, I think you've touched on it before, but uh, just a question in terms of dealing with kind of stressful situations. Is practice kind of geared towards experiencing a stressful situation and saying, oh, it's not stressful, or <coughs> seeing the situation and kind of viewing, yes, it is, and of holding your thought and seeing it's a stressful situation? Kind of, I guess I've briefly tried both. One way people see Think, oh, you don't care about anything. <laughs> another, another way, hundreds and hundreds of times a day, oh, stressful stuff, stressful stuff. So, how do you kind of deal with it in the moment? And, and, uh, uh, well, one of the things that people, um, in in my my situation, because of Amravati being a, a big monastery and such like, and that uh, people always say, oh, you're so busy. I, I don't want to bother you. You're so busy, and so. I know I can be a bit pedantic, but uh, I say I try. I endeavour never to be busy, but I'm often very active. So the stress is is a state of mind. The stress is in the attitude, not in the activity. So there can be a lot going on, a lot of demands uh, on your time and on your attention and on your skills, but it doesn't have to be stressful. The stress is in the. I would suggest the stress is in the attitude. And so that 
I take that very seriously, and it's also, I think, one of the reasons I can survive quite happily at Amravati is because of that, uh, not and not taking the agitation or activity uh, personally, and also uh, just making that attitudinal shift. Okay, there's a lot going on, but I don't have to to uh, create a sense of burden or or obligation around it and I find that makes a huge difference and that even if other people around you are like, what are we going to do what are we going to do <laughs> you know, sometimes socially we feel compelled to join into somebody else's mood it feels like like if you cared you'd be upset like me you say well, no I care but I'm not upset you know? <laughs> well, if you if you cared you'd be really angry like I am you know oh this, this is amazing it's incredible it's wonderful you know, and you think, oh, well, I'm very happy for you. And, the, and you think, you're putting me down because you're not excited like I am. So you don't want to be coming from a place of superiority or, or just like uh, a kind of false distancing or a dissociation. It's not that, but rather just because somebody else is experiencing an intense mood, you don't have to pick it up uh, to... to um, be acknowledging what they feel, but also not feeling that you're going to be rude or insensitive or uncaring if you don't join in. And that takes a bit of, it's almost like a, depends on a body, a mindfulness of the body, because it, your, our bodies react. If someone is sort of tense and agitated, we find, yeah, right, what should we do, what should we do? Then, What's happened? <laughs> and then you realize you just got tense on account of their tension. So that meeting and receiving other people's moods you really have to kind of bring your attention to your body and just let the you know, stomach kind of hang over your trousers and <laughs> let your shoulders go down and relax your face because it's so easy just to get swept up in somebody else's uh, the energy of their mood but um, if you have that attitude of, of recognizing you can be very active and have a lot going on, then, um, uh, but not be not be busy with it, or not be stressed, or, or particularly not be anxious about certain outcomes. Like trust that uh, you'll know what to do if it goes this way or that way. If you get fixed on a particular outcome, you create stress. You can make the choices that you do and give the direction that as best you can, and then okay, this uh, this looks like a good direction. Let's see what happens. Rather than we've got to get it there. And there is not good. It's got to be there. <laughs> then, the more adaptable you are, the more things can go skillfully. Also, on a very practical level, I make lists, and there's something in me feels even if the list might be a page and a half long, if you've got everything on the list, it's like okay, we're covered. <laughs> I know what needs to be done, even though it's like 18 or 25 things. Okay, I got I got the list, and so then. It's when you, you're not quite sure what needs to be done. You're not quite sure what you're responsible for. You're not quite sure what's, what needs to be acted on immediately. Then that also creates stressing. But if you make a, a list that uh, takes into account as much as you're aware of, then, okay, you can refer to that. So I find that makes a big difference. So you're carrying your list around with you. <laughs> but um, that's, uh, that quality of... Uh, like a f having attention on the whole field of what's got your name on and what you're responsible for or involved in is that's being taken care of.
Do you have any? I can finish. Okay. Please. Thank you, Ajahn. Thank you all for coming. Um, really happy to hear your Dhamma and uh, old stories. Uh, we're going to we're gonna have tea at 5 o'clock if anyone would like to join us in the house. Otherwise, uh, tomorrow there's a program at Ayas beginning at 1.30. So we'll do our usual um, to recognize. Thank you for the talk. Handamayang dhammakata satu karang tatamase satu 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 anamodhami. And the books are at the back. <laughs>